I am Brian Brinkman. And I am Jake Cohen. You are tuned in to episode 45 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself, and tonight, Jake, utilize the music of fish as a Trojan horse of sorts, as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are generally non-jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans. Sometimes the problem with fish fans is they got one track minds. They get a bit myopic. They only listen to fish. They can recount set lists at the drop of a hat and pick up big copies of the Helping Friendly book and just go crazy with fish and not realize there's so many other bands out there. We're going to do something about it. Absolutely. We are here coming to you in our 45th episode to talk about one of my favorite jams, a formative jam in my fandom for Fish. I think for all of us, I think for all of you guys listening, one of the best jams the band has ever played. Talking about none other than the ACDC bag from Boise, Idaho on September 14th, 1999. Just an unbelievable jam. For anyone who's coming at us late, who has not listened to much Beyond the Pond, just as a quick overview of what we do. We're going to take the ACDC bag. We're going to break this down into a couple of our favorite segments, dissect it, nerd out on it, talk about what was happening on the tour, what may have led to this. And then we're going to splinter off, talk about a few other bands and artists that we think that you guys would really enjoy based on themes that we've come up with about this jam. And some of the themes we're going to explore in this episode include familiar themes in the minor key. Dark minor key synths with watery effect guitar leads and big fat disco parties. But we've got a guest in this episode and um, we're going to talk to him just now. This is uh, Jake Cohen. You may know him on Twitter at, uh, at Meaningless Excitement. He's an intelligent guy. He's a musicologist. He's a very focused fish fan. And um, it's actually at. It's at smooth atonal sound. Oh, that's correct. The, uh, yeah, but I just pop up on everybody's Twitter feed as meaningless excitement. So that's right. It is smooth atonal. That is at smooth atonal sound. Well, that's, that's okay. Correct. And because and because of Twitter's limitations on uh, at handle characters, it's SND. So at smooth atonal SND. Smooth atonal so. SND. You can all be sure that we'll put this. We'll put this in the show notes. You can all be sure of that. Yes. <laughs> and it is a private... Yeah. I was going to say, it's a private account, but if you have anything that even remotely, tip, remotely tips your hat as to your uh, love of this music, then uh, you, get a, you get a follow request approved. As to your very heady <laughs> inclinations. But this is great because we've actually wanted to have Jake on for a long time. 
it's been in the works. We finally were able mm-hmm. to fit it into our our very oh so busy schedules. So, and as soon as you asked me, as soon as you asked me to be on the show, the first jam I thought of was let's do the Boise bag. And I think we were like, eh, everyone knows the Boise bag. But then you you pitched it to us, and we're like, oh, okay, that's a pretty cool presentation. Fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Jake, coming at us, where? what was your introduction to fish? Like, how did this whole journey start for you? Well, I got, like so many um, middle-class Jewish kids from the Northeast, I went to Jewish summer camp and all my counselors were deadheads. And that is how I got into the Grateful Dead originally at a very young age, because all my counselors were deadheads. And um, I remember the moment very specifically when I first heard Terrapin Station coming out of my counselor's stereo and was just drawn to it like a moth to the light. And uh, a few years later, I got into fish. And I had sort of been aware of them because other counselors there had had been into them as well, but it had never really clicked for me. Um, Summer of 1996, uh, my counselor, who was a a taper, an old-school fish taper as well, a guy named Mark Goldberg, um, he sat me down and he played me the tape that he had recorded of the uh, seven eight ninety four game henge show from Great Woods, the last game henge. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, he kind of explained, you know, he sort of sherpaed me through the the mythology and the lore. And I remember it was like a rainy day, so there was no activities that day, and it was just I I kind of fell in love with it, you know, lizards immediately sort of you know jumped out at me and uh played that tape endlessly i only had the first set <laughs> i only listened to the first let first set of that tape and um you know eventually i got a live one i got some other tapes i got some other albums and then my first show was um a year later at the worcester centrum it was the eleven twenty nine ninety seven 97 um the the runaway jam with the the 59 minute runaway jam wow yep and I had no, I had no idea what was happening. Yeah. No, I can't imagine you would. No, I had no idea that. <laughs> what was? What were your thoughts? I had no idea that anything out of the ordinary was happening. You know, it was like. Okay. Yeah, I was like, I, I, I could tell it was long, but you know, people around me were losing their minds, and I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> it's funny. Um, so I did not. I'm not Jewish. I did not go to Jewish summer camp, but I did go to summer camp in the Midwest. And I discovered fish in the exact mm-hmm. same manner. I had a camp counselor who went on fall or yeah, summer and fall '97 tour, and passed me along a number of tapes, and took me to see Trey at Alpine. And it's like that's the indoctrination. Like, I wonder what my parents would say if they could look in hindsight and be like, "Probably should have sent this kid to summer camp." <laughs> I'm I'm glad to hear that it's not limited to one particular denomination or religion. All 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 American summer camps are into indoctrinating. So Jake, do you have a like favorite show and a particular era of fish? Um my favorite era sort of depends on my mood. Um I love uh 2003 because I did that whole summer tour and I saw 27 shows that year, so Damn. Um, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, you know, that was the summer right after I graduated college. So it was primed for some strong 2.0 touring. Um, but, uh, you know, 
94, 93, 97, 99. I love them all. I'd say if I had to pick a single favorite show, Hard Pressed, I would say Binghamton 95, uh, 12, 14, 95. Mostly because, yeah, mostly because of the Haley's NICU Slave. Uh, just the jam in and out of NICU is like one of my favorite things. So it's Also, Friend of the Pond and one-time guest Josh Carver's favorite fish show for that same reason. Yep, yep, it is, it is, and uh, no, uh, Andy, Andy Hollander also went to uh, went to went to. I think he went to school in Binghamton, so he talks a lot about that show. When you're not listening to Fish, what do you got on? Well, I do listen to the good old Grateful Dead uh, somewhat frequently. Um, this summer, we kind of wore out the the Garcia band Cats Under the Stars album. Um, Yacht Rock Jerry. Oh yeah, so good, so good. Don, it's um, my my theory is that Cats Under the Stars is actually a Donna album with uh it's a Donna side project featuring Jerry. That's yeah, basically. basically. It's definitely some of the foxiest Donna moves on that album. Yes, yes. Um recently I've been listening to a lot of uh indie folk uh and Americana kind of uh recordings. Uh, I've been really into This Is the Kit, uh Decemberists, um Dobro player named Charlie Parr, uh, Offa Rex, um, and uh, I also uh, listen to a lot of uh, contemporary classical music, um, sort of related to my my profession. So um, I'm uh, really into some you know composers uh, who are still alive and kicking and uh, making amazing music these days, like uh, Missy Mazzoli, uh, John Luther Adams, Marcos Balter. Caroline Shaw, um, Hannah Lash, Ashley Fury, Steve Reich. Uh, and I also listen to a lot of um, 20th century American classical composers who do weird stuff like uh, Charles Ives, Aaron Copeland, Ruth Crawford Seeger, William Grant Still, uh, Julius Eastman, and uh, others. So pretty eclectic. Um, I do list, I list a lot of stuff. So so you've got a pretty diverse listening base here. What, what are some of your favorite shows, albums? you've heard or seen here in 2018 i uh i saw the first show that david byrne did on his uh this this new uh tour that he's been doing with the if you haven't seen it you saw the tour opener. yeah the tour opener which was in red bank new jersey and um it was just i i, I mean it blew me away i don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it but um it's just an amazing amazing show a lot of Talking Heads tunes, which was a surprise, uh, very welcome surprise. Um, I went to Newport Folk Festival as well, which um, is consistently one of the best musical experiences uh, of my year when I do manage to go. So that was a that was a highlight. It's certainly a festival I've been wanting to. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, in uh, 2008 was the fir- was the first year they brought in a new guy uh, to book the talent, and he sort of the the festival was broke basically and he came in and realized you know if we start bringing in some of these like folk adjacent um you know bands like wilco is sort of like the best example of that kind of a band um that does like you know a lot of their stuff is related to folk but is um, you know definitely not like old school yeah it's not pete seeger exactly um but that's the thing that's really cool what about the kids would you say brian what do all the kids who called Dylan Judas have to say about that? <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 fun thing is, is that there's still a lot of old school, you know, 
guys standing around a single mic with acoustic guitars and banjos and mandolins uh, at Newport every year. So um, that's still very much part of it. So I know that you've got a new podcast in the works. You're joining the uh, growing fish fan podcast group that we've all got going here. You think you're doing it with Mike Hamad? Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So um, we are, uh, so the, the, the podcast is called Jam Splaining. Um, which is very much intended to be tongue in cheek, <laughs> um, and uh, it's you're right. It's me. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so it's me and uh, Mike Hammond, and um, we are recording episodes right now, and we're going to debut later this fall. And you can follow us on Twitter um, at at Jamsplaining to uh, stay on top of uh, when we do finally end up releasing some episodes. And the idea is that um, you know we're both musicologists, uh, which you know means we both have PhDs in musicology, and um, and we know from you know being on social media that people are really interested in the technical side of the music of Fish and the Dead and other jam bands. Um, you look at the you know the anatomy of a jam videos that um, Amar Guitar on his YouTube channel has uh, been very popular with. So there's yes. there's definitely a sort of uh, you know. I think a desire amongst fish fans um, to know a little bit more about the technical side of music. So we figured let's have a podcast where uh, instead of just, you know, chatting about fish, we put our, our training to work and apply what we've learned as musicologists to improvisational rock music. So, so that's what we're going to do. And um, we don't have a schedule yet, but the episodes will be around like 30 minutes or so. There's gonna be a lot of music. It'll be a little conversational. It'll be a little educational. Um, it's definitely going to be technical. And um, like I said, follow us at Jamsplaining. Uh, and you should be able to also find us on Facebook to find out more. Once again, where can we find you on Twitter one last time? The uh, So the for the podcast, it's going to be uh, at Jamsplaining. And uh, you can follow me personally uh, at Smooth Atonal Sound, S-N-D. All right. And on that note, let's get to the fish. So why are we talking about September 14th, 1999, ACDC bag? Well, if you have not heard this jam, turn off everything, even this podcast, and go and listen to this jam in full. It's 27 minutes of absolute 99 bliss. It is one of the most accomplished, one of the most seamless, one of the most melodic and varied jams that the band has ever played. It's one of my favorite jams, as I said at the top of the show, and we're very excited to be talking about this jam. It's an absolutely incredible achievement for the band overall. Jake, as our guest, why did you want to talk about this jam? I think you kind of hit it when you said varied. You know, it's so varied. It goes through so many different jam phases, and we're going to listen to um, to two of the jam segments, you know, two of the sort of improvisational episodes, but it's got a couple other that we're not even going to talk about. It's got a, a big sort of peaky, soaring psychedelic jam. It's got a fast kind of uh, 
arena rock jam. And then the last like six minutes or so of it are like this weird twitchy digital sound effects, vacuum assisted, um, you know, ambient space, um, which is really um, unlike most sort of spacey jams that fish has ever played. Yeah. It's like, it's really of a time and a place, but it's also to me like, this is that connective tissue between 1997, 1999 and 2000. Um, for me, so I was given three tapes when I first got into fish, as I kind of mentioned at the top, we were talking about how you got into fish summer camp was it for me. And a, an older counselor gave me 11, 17, 94, 10, 7, 2000 and 9, 14, 1999. And um, just a side note, I don't think I'd ever pass those shows to anyone to get into fish, but somehow it worked for me. I still love uh, 11, 17, 94 and 914 99. Those are two just like very special shows to me. 7, 2000. Yeah. October 7, 2000. That was like a melon. It's like a melancholy show. Yeah. A really weird show to pass <laughs> to someone to like get into a band. Like here's the last show that they ever played. Um <laughs> I am like obsessed with like historical dates. So I feel like that might've been part of the reason I was drawn to it as well, but I don't know. Um, this jam, you know, both of those shows, all three of these shows, like this bag is the only real jam out of them. And it really hit me and proved to me immediately just how seamlessly the band could lock in on a theme, really expand upon it, jam in this very intentional manner as though they were playing previously written music. And, I brought these CDs to college just a short year and a half later, I probably listened to this a thousand times in my freshman year dorm. I would like invite people off of the floor to listen to it. It just blew me away. It was like the symphony I could not stop listening to. I loved it so much. Hey man, you gotta hear this. You gotta yeah, hear this. Sure you did that completely sober as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you though. There's there is nothing to my ears that is as hauntingly beautiful as the first jam segment of this version. It's just that 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 is for me, you know, every other part of this jam there's other jams that have something maybe a little similar, but there is nothing in the Fish catalog that kind of strikes me the same way that the first part of this jam does and I'll I'll talk about why I think that is in a little bit, but um, you know, this is also sort of the last of the big ACDC bags. Um, there was a sort of monster three-year run for the song from 97 through 99, where it was a big set to jam vehicle a couple of times. It wasn't, wasn't frequently, but, you know, I mean, there's, of course, the, um, the Hampton 97 and then New Year's 97 and then uh, UIC 98 and then this... Virginia Beach 98 Yeah, Virginia well, Beach, for sure. Yeah, yes. yeah. And then um, the only other time they really took bag out for this kind of a, a trot was uh, was Coventry actually, um, which Coventry and Woods 04. Those Great those Woods, two that's right. Were, like, yeah, randomly stuck in there. I have no idea why, but I think at that point they were just like they they didn't even want to play songs. They just wanted to jam, and it was like doesn't matter. Right. You know, they just wanted to like you know it was like let's play something so we can get to the jam and. Um, ACDC bag a buddy is easy. Me on, um, <laughs> buddy of mine texted me on Velvet Night because they opened up the second set with this, and it was just like all exclamation points. And I thought it was going to happen. Yeah, I know. 
I know when that happened, he texted me. I was like, I was like freaking out on my couch and I, you know, I love that stat. I think that that would have been a perfect place to bring that back. Then. I, I turned to my crew. We were on the floor that night and I was like, this is it. This is going to be the, the, the monster set to opening ACDC bag. Like it's happening. And then it didn't. But I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that Wolfman's is, that's my favorite. The, the minute 12 of that Wolfman's from Red Velvet Night is my favorite moment of the entire Baker's Dozen. But that's for another, another episode. <laughs> Funny. I have a, a confession to make in that I actually hadn't heard this jam until it was made alive officially, so a little over like a year ago. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they played so many shows in 1999. I mean, there's a lot to catch up on. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing to me that I was able to see the band in Long Island in October, like uh, 10-7 and 10-8 in 99. That's when the Mets were in the playoffs. And then two months later, I could see them in Philadelphia being 12-10 and 12-11. I mean, that's that's never going to happen again, where they basically they do a whole run and they take like a few weeks off and do like a whole like concluding run, both in like the Northeast. They, mm-hmm. they played three full tours in six months. It's totally unprecedented in post-1996 fish. It's it's wild. Or post-1995. It's like, yeah, I, I'm blown away constantly when I look at how many shows happened in 1999 because just a year later, they'd go on a hiatus and then they'd play like very, very sparingly. Um, so speaking of that, in terms of like this show where it falls in this tour, we've talked about late fall 1999. We haven't really talked about early fall 1999 in this podcast. And so it's an interesting start to the tour. They kick things off in Vancouver, which it's weird. Was this the last time that they played in Vancouver? Uh, yeah, they've played in Canada before. I think this is the last time they played. Right. Last time they played in Vancouver. And uh, that show, the 9999 show, in addition to having like um, what the first Mozambique, I think it was one of one of two Mozambiques, right? Yeah, right. One or two. There were like some other tab songs that opened yeah. that show. That has that show has one of the most underrated, unheralded madness tweezers. I mean, despite being a tour yes. opener, usually in 3.0, a tour opener means kind of like a bit of like a tentative slop fest. But Jesus Christ, this tweezer. This could be... I don't know if... I've never heard that tweezer, actually. So. Oh, it, it gets insane. It's nice. just throwing all kinds of shit at the wall. and It's <laughs> like it's like the Michael Bay of tweezers. You're just hired to blow shit up. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe, nice. maybe a future Beyond the Pond pick. But anyway... And then the the fall gorge shows, which must have been gorgeous during the day and absolutely freezing at night, I'm sure. But um, yeah, that's bizarre. They played the gorge in September. Yeah, and then they go to uh, they go to Portland for the Sunday, and they did four nights in a row: Vancouver, Gorge, Gorge, Portland, Thursday through Sunday. And then the next Thursday was in Shoreline which was that show where Phil came out and jumped on the trampolines. And the Tuesday in between Portland, Oregon and Shoreline, and if you look at a map, you'll see why this is crazy, was in Boise. And, you know, it's like, this is your classic 
sleeper show. It was undersold. It was a Tuesday. It was wicked out of the way for anyone who was on tour. Um, you know, really, the only reason you would have gone to this show is if you lived in Montana or, or Idaho, um, <laughs> or you were, or maybe yeah. you were coming back from the that, those Pacific Northwest shows. If you were driving back east, maybe you you would have included it. But um, I've I've heard from a number of people who you know were miraculously there that um, this was like you know it was way undersold and like the it was a GA floor and a GA stands and I think that like the stands had zero people it was just it was just the floor basically I met a guy in college who was at this show who it was his only fish show and he had no idea he was like yeah I saw them once in Boise and I was like when and it was one of those weird moments where you're like <laughs> this person's gonna think it's really weird if I say nine fourteen ninety nine. yeah I had a similar I had a similar uh, I had a similar encounter with a guy at a conference, a scholar from Prague who was like, "Oh yeah, I saw fish once in Prague in uh, 1998." And I was like, "July 6th." <laughs> <laughs> You're like, "I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it cool here, but um, were you yeah. really at the show?" And he was like, "Yeah, it was a good show. It was a fun concert." And I was like, "No, no, no. No." no. But <laughs> <laughs> Like getting angry at my at like his joy of just like liking the concert because I was like, no, you have to understand this was, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting start to the tour and I mean they haven't played Idaho since then since and, you know, no. they only they'll give us Tahoe and Bend I guess once and um, uh, the Gorge and they played Eugene in Seattle like they very sparingly go to the Pacific Northwest and as someone who resided in Portland for almost two years during 3.0 I can attest to how frustrating that is because there's a lot of fans there um, yeah but yeah well, there's a lot of craft beer there's a lot of fish fans right right <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah so following this show they go to Shoreline Phil Lesh is there um, 918.99 another Fall 99 live fish release phenomenal 20 minute boogie on that's not totally dissimilar to the bag but it also showcases the overall diversity in the tour um, I feel like there's if there's ever a complaint about 99 it's that the band started to be really sloppy and that their jams were like very millennial sounding and um, kind of airy and ambient and I love how much they just do with that type of sound it never feels like a crutch that they're falling back on I feel like in, in um, retrospect in retrospect people have been much more praising of 1999 fish than they were at the time which is not surprising but um, you know sort of with 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 the the backwards glance that hindsight gives us like you can see its role in the sort of evolution of the band sound and people have i mean i i feel like every time shapiro releases another you know from the archives people are like more 99 more 99 you know so yeah 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 no i mean i totally agree and there's a lot to choose from and it's it's such an interesting year for to me because it is such a clear diversion from 
97 and 98 even though it's really connected to those two years but like there's like a growth that's there's like another step that they're going through musically but then well and trey had trey had you know written all his trey tunes and that was one of the big things you know was that like you know he was you know, he was jamming by laying down these, you know, those loops, the the ghost loops, you know, on like Jabu in, in, in 99. And, um, you know, just sort of creating this, this soundscape over which he would then solo. And he brought that to, to Fish jamming as well. You know, and that's, that's, you know, you really, see, you really hear that influence of the electric tab shows, those trio shows. I'm realizing it now, I think that 99 is, aside from any 3.0 years 99 is becoming our most popular year for beyond the pond episodes this is we've done the virginia beach birds the camden chalked us now this and the um memphis 2001 it's just super clear how how big and how diverse of a year this is how much there is to pick from yeah i love this year i love the way that they sound at this fall tour because you feel like they picked up aspects of... There's that really great show from Japan. I think it's July 31st, 99. Um, you could kind of hear the seeds of what they would do the following June in Japan start to be taking hold. And they were clearly plotting themselves towards the all-night show at Big Cypress that was coming up just a few months away. I mean, there's just a lot that they're kind of toying with at this point in time that I just absolutely love. A lot of patience and a lot of like expansive jamming, really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just like seeing, you know, really earnestly what's around the next corner. Like, mm-hmm. where can this lead us? And, you know, a lot of it comes out of, I totally agree with what you were saying at the top about, um, you know, how hauntingly beautiful the entry point from ACDC bag into the jam is. You, really sounds unlike anything I've ever heard from Fish. And I feel like you had a lot of those moments in 1999 where they'd play a jam and you were like, I've honestly never heard the band play in any style like this. On that note, I think we need to listen to some of the ACDC bag from September 14th, 1999.
so that 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 whole segment of ACDC bag um, is just like I was saying, you know, hauntingly beautiful. And for me, I mean, so what's what's actually happening there is that, you know, and the reason it sounds so familiar, but 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 sort of dark, is because Fish is playing the chords to ACDC bag, the the regular sort of chorus chords or the jam chords, but they are playing them in the minor key, in the minor mode, instead of major key. So um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the chords to ACDC bag are A, C, D, C, F, A, G. Uh, And for obvious reasons, they changed the name to bag. Um, But the, um, and those are all major chords. And all they do, and this happens right at the very beginning of that jam, Mike just plays an A and then a C instead of a C sharp. And that one little note difference, that one pitch difference, just changes the entire landscape of the jam. And instead of all major chords, you get A minor, C major, D major, C major, F, A minor, G. And that one change to A minor is what just like throws this whole thing into this sort of dark psychedelic dreamscape. And it got me thinking about, um, you know, other times that uh, people or you know musicians or composers have taken a very familiar melody and all they've done is just changed it into the minor key and it changes everything. And the, the most sort of famous example of this from history is uh, Gustav Mahler, uh, the Viennese composer um, from uh, right, right at the end of the 19th and uh, beginning of the 20th century. Um, in his first symphony, the third movement, he takes the Frere Jaca melody, which, you know, everybody knows, you know, Frere Jaca, Frere Jaca. And um, he plays it in the minor mode. And again, it's just a tiny melodic adjustment. Just one note goes down a little bit, but it immediately affects the entire mood. So instead of da, 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 it's da, 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 da. And that instantly just turns it into this sort of funeral march. Um, and he adds a, uh, a beat to it, like this sort of um, funeral march beat. And he plays it with the low instruments, so the, the double bass, the bassoon, and the cellos. And um, he actually imagined that this movement was like a funeral procession for forest animals, <laughs> which is a really sort of dark but playful kind of, you know, very psychedelic kind of uh, image, I think. And... Um, you know, he adds these counter melodies and there's all this complexity and it further sort of deepens this sense of dreaminess. And to say that it's psychedelic is not that far of a leap because um, the, the Vienna that Mahler lived in was a kind of a hedonistic place and people were ingesting all kinds of substances and, and they were thinking about dream states. You know, this is when Sigmund Freud was really, um, you know, coming up in the, in the world of psychoanalysis and inventing psychoanalysis. And so um, when you hear this, you're going to hear this, this familiar melody, just like that ACDC bag jam, but you're going to hear it in a very sort of dark and dreary and eerie kind of setting. And uh, we're going to listen to probably the classic Mahler symphonic recording, which is uh, Leonard Bernstein 
conducting the New York Philharmonic. So this is uh, Mahler's first symphony, the beginning of the third movement. So the um, the other you know so that that is sort of the reason the, the first thing I thought of when I heard this jam and thought about what it reminds me of was this this whole fact that the ACDC bag is playing in the in the wrong or not the wrong but in a different key um, or in the the same key but just in the minor key. Uh, but the the other thing that I hear a ton of in this jam, and I think if it was just a minor version of. ACDC bag, it would be it would be good, but not great. But what really kicks this segment into the next level is the sort of resplendent, shimmering, psychedelic quality of the sound of of the jam, especially Trey's guitar. A, a few minutes into it, when he kicks in the the envelope filters and just gives it this amazing sort of watery, uh, hazy reverb, and. Uh, you know, it instantly brought to mind um, the Cure's Disintegration album, which um, you know throughout the entire album just has that whole that that same kind of um, you know hazy reverb, those watery envelope filters, big sort of synthesizer sounds. The guitar is very heavily affected, and um, especially the opening of the of the song "Last Dance," which uh, really reminds me of this section of the Bag Jam. There's the sort of sparse drums, this big expansive sound, and these watery guitar effects on the leads. Um, and like the ACDC bag, it's in a minor key, and it's sort of dark and has this wild dreamscape quality to it. Yeah, just to that note, I think um, what Disintegration came out in 1989, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the big singles off that record were Pictures of You and Love Song, both of which, while great, neither really captured the spirit of that record, which, like you're saying, is much more droney and psychedelic and, frankly, 
weird in a good way. Yeah. You know? And Robert Smith was was self-medicating with um, LSD for much of the writing and recording of that album. Okay. I believe that. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. The, the, <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> the opening song on the record, Plain Song, that's a really good example of shoegaze, which we talk about all the time in love. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, the other single, Fascination Street, has that incredible Simon Gallup bass line, which is like three notes, just him going, da-dun, 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 gong, 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 mm-hmm. right, at the whole song. And it's just... It's foreboding and it's awesome. So and if you're looking to get into The Cure, that album is way more psychedelic and less frenetic post-punk than the early stuff. I think the one that came after it, Wish, that was one of their bigger... Popular. En- hmm? Yeah, popular. That was one of like yeah. the bigger, bigger MTV albums that had Friday I'm In Love. Right. But it's also got big dramatic windswept epics like from the edge of the great dean from the edge of the deep green sea and if you ever have a chance to cure live especially for fish fans do it because they play like for three hours i mean they'll play like 35 songs in three hours but they're uh i've seen them twice they're very very good live and on that note let's listen to some last dance the cure first segment there familiar keen familiar themes in a minor key um so jumping into new album recommendations so as of time of recording i have not stopped listening to this record and i've probably listened to it 10 times to this point in time just in a matter of days when this episode is released i do sincerely hope that this is still true i imagine this is still true because right now this is probably my favorite record of 2018 this is Jeff the Brotherhood's Magic Songs. For those of you who don't know the band, 
It's two brothers from Nashville, Jake and uh, Jamin Oral. They can be categorized in a number of different ways. I mean, their sound is kind of – it just kind of uh, defies categorization. But you could say they have elements of psych, garage rock, punk, pop, even just general rock. They're, I mean, they're guitar, drums, effects. There's some psychedelic noise in it. It's stuff that any one of our listeners is going to love. Um, this duo started releasing records around 2001 while they were still in high school. And while they received critical acclaim in Nashville, they really didn't. They really weren't widely listened to until a later age. Um, they released EPs with Ty Siegel, Best Coast, and Screaming Females. And in 2012, the record Hypnotic Nights was produced by Dan Auerbach and was recorded in a single week. Uh, this new record, Magic Songs, is really well produced, but it's still really kind of. Um, feels lo-fi in its production but like it works for it really really well there's just beautiful melodies and guitar lines and kind of psychedelic noise that comes in and immerses into each song at like a very slow building pace um the lyrics will like kind of feel like they're coming like flying by like you're just traveling down the road they come at you and then they're gone guitar chords throughout here the rhythms are just phenomenal um, and the flow of the overall record is, I, I would say from a flow standpoint, from just like pressing start on a record and listening all the way through, it's probably my favorite of the entire year in that standpoint. Uh, I cannot recommend this record enough. I am texting Dave every five, 10 minutes with a new song he needs to listen to from this record. It's really that great. Jeff, the brotherhood magic songs. I encourage every one of our listeners to be listening to this. Dave, what do you got? Um, yeah, Brian, I will back you up on that Jeff Brotherhood album. It sounds I was a big fan of Hypnotic Nights from 2012, which you mentioned, but that album basically just sounds like Hesher's covering Weezer's Blue album, and this new one sounds absolutely nothing like that. It kind of reminded me a lot of uh, the Flaming Lips album Embryonic from a few years ago. So I would recommend that highly as well. The album I'm going to talk about is the third album from a Philadelphia band called, they're called Nothing. They're on Twitter at Nothing the Band. So we talk a lot about shoegaze on Beyond the Pond. And these guys, they are led by a dude named, uh, named Dominic Palermo. He actually had his roots in a, a hardcore band called Horror Show. But now he's doing the heavy shoegaze thing, and it kind of sounds a lot like Smashing Pumpkins at points, just thick layers of guitar with Palermo's dreamy vocals. I know he said he's been heavily influenced by The Cure, heavily influenced by My Bloody Valentine. And in terms of sort of um, not the lighter side of shoegaze, but the more heavier, skull-crushing and yet at times poppy, it's uh, one of the better records I've heard in a very long time. I mean, they've always had from uh, their first record, which I think came out, I want to say, four years ago called Guilty of Everything. They've always had the sound, but a little deficient in the songwriting department. Um, they had an album that came out in 2016 that had improved on that. But the most recent one, it's like the songwriting has finally caught up with the sound. And in addition to being like, you know, some excellent 
shoegaze, dream pop heaviness, the songs are quite memorable as well. Certainly, um, I don't know if it was, I think the first single was the opening track, Zero Day, which I think is actually one of the weaker songs on the record. But then you get something like Blue Line Baby, which I'm obsessed with. And the next song, You Wind Me Up, that could be like a, a crossover pop hit. It's just very well done. And if you're a fan of the genre, I would recommend you check them out as soon as possible. Jake, what do you got? Well, those are those are both excellent uh, recommendations, neither of which I have heard or heard of. Um, and um, I'm going to take it in a little different direction uh, with um, a, a uh, an album that was actually released last year in 2017, but just came into my um, my sort of uh, you know came across my desk as it were uh, this year. And uh, this is a band called This Is the Kit. Yeah, so it's the um, so this is the kit. It's the alias of um, the uh, the lead singer and uh, songwriter whose name is Kate Stables, and um, she's British. And she, I guess the best way to describe her would be she's a she's a folk singer songwriter. But there is just uh, such a sort of quirky, fascinating quality to her songwriting, and this unbelievably just sort of gentle tone to her vocal quality that is very peaceful and relaxing. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have, she sort of has that British folk singer quality where it's a little cleaner and a little bit um, more classical in a way than like the American folk singers, which tend to be a little more maybe nasal or twangy and sort of have more of that like Americana uh, you know, sort of country influence, but um, her music is somewhere between kind of you know indie rock and folk. Um, she plays the banjo uh, on stage uh, as well as guitar, but a lot of her songs are banjo led, and um, she sort of does like um, like she doesn't play the banjo in a conventional American you know sort of bluegrass style like Clawhammer or Flat and Scrug style at all. She sort of plays it almost like a an acoustic guitar with with uh, arpeggios and finger picking. And um, one of the coolest things about her about her songs is they have a lot of really interesting kind of rhythmic tricks and complexities to them. There's a song on that album. Uh, so the album is called Moonshine Freeze. I didn't think I don't think I mentioned that. Um, so this is the kit Moonshine Freeze from 2017. And the um, the title track Moonshine Freeze has this really interesting kind of herky jerky uh, combination of different rhythms that sound like they're not right, but they fit together perfectly. Um, she's got a couple of songs that are a little bit harder, a little more sort of rock edged. Uh, one is called Hotter Colder. Um, she's got one called um, uh, All Written Out Numbers, which is uh, both both songs I love. Um, and then she's got some really gentle sort of pensive songs like uh, Empty No Teeth and uh, Bulletproof that are um, just gorgeous. So uh, you do, I would say you, you probably have to be a little bit predisposed to liking uh, sort of singer songwriter folky music. It's not something that if you're just like rock or jam bands, you're going to like listen to this and be like, Oh, I love this, but um, maybe it's a good sort of gateway drug into the world of folk music. Yeah, I saw them open up for the National about 10 months ago, and 
I can definitely back up everything you're saying. It was very hauntingly beautiful. And I loved how the rhythms of her, of her songs just kind of like bounced around in a really unique way. Kind of always kept me on my toes. So I would definitely, I'd back you up. I'd recommend this record to any one of our listeners, especially, you know, I mean, we've definitely featured our fair share of singer songwriter folk music on this podcast. Um, And I would say that uh, this definitely falls in line with um, some of the best of that stuff. All right. Um, So we listened to that first jam, which was gorgeous. And, then it goes into a sort of improvisational space that is a lot more familiar to many of us. It's sort of this soaring, peaky, psychedelic jam. Sounds, you know, it's gorgeous. It's an amazing jam. It's very unique. Uh, actually, I should say it's an amazing jam, but it's not very unique for that time period. You know, it sounds like a lot of the other sort of floaty, um, soaring, peaky, psychedelic jams from 97, 98, 99. And then it gets into this um, sort of punchy rock jam, which, um, you know, almost at times reminds me of like some of the best, you know, some of the fun parts of the the uh, Camden Chalk Dust from that summer. Like not not the not the not the glory hole part, but the the parts that lead into it. Um, and then this is just like a big fat disco dance party. And I just love it. So, yeah, it's um it's amazing how far astray we get from mm-hmm. five minutes into this jam that they've built this up into I think at some point around this this point of the jam there was a tortilla war not a glow stick war there were tortillas flying that's very Pacific Northwesty yeah and there's there's actually there's a full <laughs> video of this jam on YouTube which is really good quality and you can see the tortillas one of my one of the first things I remember ever hearing about fish was there's a point, I don't know exactly where it is within this gym, but I think it's in this segment where Mike's bass goes up so much louder than everyone else. And apparently, as I've been told, and this may be hearsay, um, a tortilla hit the soundboard and like hit Mike's levels up a, a bit. And Paul actually picked up the tortilla, tossed it back to the crowd, and adjusted it. And if you hear, there's a segment in this whole part of the jam where Mike's bass just, like, explodes. And I don't know if it's true. I've always loved the lore of that. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, it's an awesome story. (laughs) So let's listen to a little bit of this. uh, I guess we would say just from a timing standpoint, this is kind of where the jam starts to pick up build and it's going to lead to its eventual ambient conclusion yeah this is the, the sort of last jam before the ambient space at the end and it's a and it's got some start stop too so don't be fooled by the by the lack of woos there you're not supposed to woo
so the you know as far as you know there's so many obviously disco songs that you could talk about with with reference to this this section of the jam but the thing that I think really sort of defines this jam for me is not just that Fishman has the sort of four on the floor um, or not not a true four on the floor because he's I don't think he's capable of doing that but um, you know the the, the sort of hi hat uh, on the on the beat and and just uh, you know steady sort of disco beat um, the thing that really sort of strikes me about this is the 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 punchy kind of uh, guitar strums that lead the the jam they're sort of trey is strumming on the beat he's kind of doing this like and it gives it this sort of funky retro 70s sound but it's guitar led and it reminded me a lot of um this band called escort which is a a band from uh not from the 70s but from uh this day or from this decade and the previous one um so uh and their 2007 uh, song all through the night, which um, is just a, a fun, fun disco tune. It's got horns, it's got um, you know vocals. So in in a lot of ways, it's different than this jam, but it does have that sort of guitar strumming to lead the the beat and just the you know the the singers. I, I just like imagine like glitter jumpsuits and big like you know like nineteen seventy five share singing this basically so or donna summer or something so give it to me say it to me work it with me if you're ready i'm about to pop interesting the album i'm going to talk about is called the glow of love by the band change which came out in 1980 and to be perfectly honest i hadn't listened to this album until this week because i read about it in the recent uh pitchfork top 200 1980s and while generally once you get around to the top 50 60 i've heard all those records those lists are lots of fun because there's lots of stuff in like, you know, the 180s, 170s, 190s that you haven't heard of or just hadn't thought of because usually the critics and contributors that they get to that thing are uh, pretty hardcore nerds, which I can appreciate. So this record, um, I think when it came out, they were kind of derided as being a poor man chic or like B-game chic because they definitely – 
do sound a lot like uh, like the Nile Nile Rogers band in the sense that they're um, a largely funky ensemble, lots of pop and bass, lots of click guitar, lots of four on the floor dance beats. And the seven songs are on this record. They're frankly, they're catchy and they're incredibly good. And also I think about half the album features the vocals of Luther Vandross before he was Luther Vandross. I know, uh, God, I think some of his earliest stuff, you can actually hear him doing the backing vocals on uh, David Bowie's Young Americans record, but he really gets to uh, step out, especially on the title track of this album, which is really something to behold. And um, the first song, A Lover's Holiday, I think that's, I actually had heard that song before. I didn't know it was by change. I've certainly heard that in like some golden oldie stations. And also... um, for people who like the Happy Mondays, the song on the Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches album called Holiday just completely rips the chorus off of the Chain song. And they do it, and I'm pretty sure they don't even credit them with it because that's what the Happy Mondays like to do. But, yeah, in terms of just a uh, – I mean, we listened to this record yesterday in the car, actually, driving to get groceries. My wife said, how on earth would this come out in the 1980s? I said, well, it came out in 1980. She said, oh, because at that point, you know, the 70s hadn't really. It takes a few years of the transitions. Like, uh, I still say that the 90s didn't become the 90s until like Nirvana broke in 1992. And in 1980, you could still probably at the influences of like the late 70s, 77 or such were still there. So, well, and it's and it's Europe, too. I mean, the. The disco and club scene in Europe is, you know, totally on a different sort of time scale than, um, right? Because you said this was an an, an Italian uh, record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, half of it was made, well, um, it's all in English, but I think they said half of it was made in Bologna and half of it was made in the States. And I think... I mean, I'm sure that this was killing it at clubs in, you know... Berlin and oh, yeah, uh, you know throughout throughout Europe for years for years after it was no no longer cool to listen to this sort of thing in the states. Yeah, it's got the very Giorgio Moroder um, sequencer type groove going on, especially in the second to last. Actually, I guess like the proper closer is a song called "The End," which I mean that sounds like a Giorgio Moroder like Donna Summer style like instrumental straight up. And, like the last song is actually it's a remix of a prior song on the album and the remix is better than the original, in my opinion. Would it have but, taken until random access memories for most American listeners to really appreciate this kind of music? Um, may have taken random access memories to kind of maybe get it back into the consciousness, but yeah, this is definitely taking from that era of music. Absolutely. That like late seventies, early 80s plastic disco, like also like Steely Dan, Gaucho era that random access memories make cool again. It's funny that Fish plays this so unabashedly and I mean, not this, not a cover, but like in this style in such a way that um, kind of just goes over so many listeners' heads in, in, in a lot of senses. And I mean, Page, the synth sound that Page drops, that big sort of synthesizer swoop 
you know, that, that comes in is like, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very unique sound from page at that time, you know, um, you know, and, um, I always, to my mind and anybody who grew up in the Boston area and is like maybe 25 or older might recognize this, but it sounds just like the WGBH logo music that would always play on the Boston PBS, PBS station. If you, if you don't know it, look it up. I don't know if you guys are going to throw it on there, but, um, just Google WGBH logo seventies and you'll hear what I mean. Page does this yes. like yes. rising synthesizer thing that is totally, you know, just like unique for, you know, pretty much any era of fish. Yeah. And Page over the last two years with his synthesizers, I mean, you talk about that, Jake, with what he was playing here in this segment of the jam. That's like a 2017, 2018 page. You don't really get that type of synthesizer sound out of him 20 years ago. That's that Baker's dozen, you know, the new, the new, the new keyboard tech uh, influence. That's, that's what it sounds like to me, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. But in 1999. <laughs> so should we play a little bit of a... Uh, yeah, let's listen to the title track. Change. Glow of Love. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here in episode 45, where we talked about the ACDC bag from Boise, Idaho. Um, so just a quick recap of the songs that we played here today. So in segment one, focusing on familiar themes in the minor key, we had Mahler's First Symphony, the third movement, as well as The Cure's Last Dance. In segment two, Big fat disco dance parties. Jake talked about escorts all through the night. And Dave talked about change the glow of love. So just a reminder of our social media links. You can find us on Twitter and at underscore beyond the pond. One word. Simplecast. The website is beyond the pond.simplecast.fm. Of course, on Spotify, we have our uh, Beyond the Pond podcast song that has all the songs we've had in every episode of Beyond the Pond. Right now, it's at 318 songs, getting kind of unwieldy. We invite you to check out uh, the other Osiris podcasts, which can all be found at OsirisPod.com. That's O-S-I-R-I-S pod.com. Leave us an iTunes review because we read them. 
And the more reviews we get, that kind of increases our standing in terms of the iTunes algorithm. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. And from a publishing standpoint, so you guys uh, saw us actually stick to our word here and every two weeks get an episode. That's going to increase dramatically here over the next couple of weeks as Fish goes back on tour for their fall tour. We'll be reviewing episodes as they will probably be taking the tour in like three or four show chunks. So keep an eye out for a bunch of episodes from us over the next month or so here. Um, but we really, we really uh, appreciate, guys, appreciate you guys coming out here for this episode and really want to send a thanks to our guest here, Jake Cohen. Thanks for hanging with us today. This was a lot of fun, really great stuff uh, you brought to the table. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me guys. It was a lot of fun to, talk shop and uh and play some play some classical music for for everyone (laughs) absolutely and uh definitely tell us uh tell everyone once again uh the the info on your your new podcast with mike ahmad yeah sure so uh jam's planning uh with uh, me and mike hammett and it's gonna be uh you can look for us we, we we don't we don't have schedule we don't have a schedule we don't have episodes yet but they're coming soon and uh follow us on twitter at jam splaining which is like explaining but jam instead of x um and uh you can also find us on facebook and uh we'll uh, be posting uh, info about our first episode, which will be sometime this fall, uh, on those, uh, social media sites. So stay tuned for that. And you can follow me on, uh, at, uh, at smooth, atonal SND as well. I am very much looking forward to that podcast coming out and, uh, yeah, Jake, thanks for joining us. I know it's, we've wanted to do this for a while and I'm happy that we've finally had an opportunity to, and on that note, As we always like to say on Beyond the Pond, it's harder than ever to make an honest buck in the music industry. So streaming is one thing, but if you like the bands that you've heard, we really encourage you to go see them live, buy a vinyl, buy some merchandise, just do something to throw some extra bucks their way. Support your local orchestra. Yes, that as well. (laughs) By all means, support your local orchestra. And... At this point, if you've made it this far in the podcast, Brian, Jake, and myself, we thank you. We'll come back in two weeks. We will hold hands. Maybe we'll sing Kumbaya. We'll definitely listen to some non-jam bands. Maybe some Italo disco. Maybe some late 80s psychedelia. I don't know. One thing we're guaranteed to do is go beyond the pond. Smiling faces going places. It's a wonder. It's so clear. By a fountain climbing mountains as we hold each other near. Sipping wine, we try to find that special magic from above. As we share our fair talking in the glow of
Buenos Aires.